Welcome to Out of the Blank. to another episode of out of the blank randy it's a pleasure to have you on the show um you are a filmmaker you are a man of many talents you're helping me with a little side project as well too and i appreciate that but if you had to pick an area i guess of jfk research or just an area that you would focus into if you made a second searchers film what would it be well i think it would be similar to what i set out to to do in the uh original searchers and that was expand the portrait of the research community um, and into other areas of, of the assassination that I just couldn't cover in, in the first. One thing I'm really interested in is um, someone would have talked. The, uh, the notion that um, the, the counter critics, the low nutters always always say someone would have talked. And um, as you know, Larry Hancock has written an amazing book on that, um, that addresses that. Ed Tetro has done a mountain of work on that. And, uh, and so that's going to be a, a chapter within my, my next film. Are you going to go into the witness deaths at all? Like someone would have talked if they weren't killed? Yes, I am. Uh, witness deaths and why he was killed. Do you go into like like I know Jim Mars, I think, estimated 120 witness deaths, and I could probably I've seen the list of what he suspected were, you know, suspicious deaths. I could probably verify maybe 40 of those or 35 of those. I've actually pulled up the list on air before and read the accounts of how these people died. I know Hale Boggs is one. Uh, I think his plane went down. Mm -hmm. um somewhere and that just went missing but then there's like i think there's two people that were in their 20s i mistakenly said before that there was a bunch of people in their 20s it was only two that i could find um one of them happened to be a witness to seeing a rifle barrel or something coming out of the sixth floor i forgot his last name um donner or something like that um so would you go into the witness deaths at all and just look how suspicious those are because that's an area i was gonna tackle but there's too much there's there's there are too many um there's so many angles um from which to observe the assassination of jfk um yeah witness deaths is definitely an area that i want to visit and uh i'll start with the research of penn jones and his forgive my grief series and then um you know jim mars talked at length with me in the original searchers about um, the witness death. So that's footage that I'll definitely be revisiting. When it, when it comes to like Guy or David Ferry and just maybe some of the suspicious witness deaths, which ones are the ones that kind of stick out in your mind? Dorothy Kilgallen is one. Dorothy was the reporter that died, but she was found fully clothed in her guest room with a book she had already read on top of her but her reading glasses were in the other room if i'm not mistaken you are exactly right 
and she had just inter, um, conducted a long interview with Jack Ruby in the Dallas County Jail. Um, some people say that there were observers. Um, the consensus is that there were no observers um, to her interview. So, um, and she said what she got would blow the lid off the case. And not long after that, she was she was found dead with all these anomalies, um, and uh, and all of her papers were gone. She told her friend that, and then I think it was not even a day or so later, her friend also died of like a I forgot what it was a heart attack or something like that. Right, suspected heart attack. That's, I mean, that's suspicious, but you got to look into like the Castro attempts. Like I had a buddy of mine who listened to one of my JFK episodes about the assassination attempts on Castro. And he goes, they killed Castro with heroin. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, look up the chemical that was in the cigars that they used to poison Castro. And I go, well, Castro didn't never had an assassination attempt that was fulfilled. He goes, all right, that aside, just look into what the cigars were. So I did. I looked up at the, the little stuff they put in the cigars. It was black tar. Black tar heroin. There's a certain toxin called botulium, something like that. It has a weird ending last name, but it was laced in those poison cigars. And like, I mean, it adds into the controversial take of why we were in Vietnam. People think like I've heard so many like I've had guests on the show that weren't even on to talk JFK or Vietnam. And they've mentioned like I had a friend who was always talking about like, guarding poppy fields in Vietnam. And it's mm -hmm. like, okay, so I think with a lot of these, like the mafia with uh, the, I believe the military industrial complex, obviously, but I mean, people have weight with the Johnson thing too. I mean, where do you stand on Johnson's involvement? And do you think he was part of the assassination attempt? Or do you think he was part of the cover up? Gosh, I that is, that is the question of questions. Um, um, I personally agree with conclusions of um, people like John Judge and and others who believed he was he was in the know, but he was um, uh, more responsible for the cover up. Ed Tatro is uh, is an interview that um, has me moving in the direction that he had direct um, direct involvement in the assassination. He, uh, as we know, as we now know about, about him, he was a ruthless, ruthless man who had every reason to um, get rid of Kennedy. So um, he had the means, motive, and opportunity, definitely. I learned a little bit more about Johnson's involvement because I, like I said in the beginning, I, I, I never thought like you would the phone call with him. He seemed like he was more about caring about himself when the assassination attempts happened, which is why I say he's part of the cover up. But one thing I want to show on screen here, which I do think is weird. And I think you've seen this photo as well, too, digging through the archives, looking for, you know, footage for this project and seeing what materials I can use. You see what I'm showing on screen? It should pop up in just a second. I want to make sure that it is. Yep, there it is. So this week. The wink, there's the wink, there's the dick right here, and then there's obviously Jackie Kennedy. And if you look like super, super close, there's a freaking tear right there. 
And what I thought was really powerful about this photo is, I mean, it's incriminating for Johnson, but he did not want Air Force One to leave until he was sworn in. He could have waited. He, when the president dies, you immediately, the vice president becomes president. There's just no official ceremony thing that happens. So he could have just, you know, just did it later, but he wanted to be sworn in and he pulled Jackie away from the back where Jack Kennedy's body was. And she's still wearing the dress. She's not changed at all. She, you know, and th that's the weird part is, is like, she's obviously going through turmoil. This guy's winking in the back. This dude's smiling. So you just get into this aspect of like, all right, who was this person's character? Then I'm in a podcast and someone tells me that Johnson and Kennedy were hated by the Secret Service. And I'm like, what do you mean? And this goes into the area where I say it's difficult if you're not speaking to all sides. And that is that JFK fanboys most of the researchers will not address the extramarital affairs. Now, I'm not using that as a as a stick or a jab at his character. I'm not. But this is important stuff because you have other people like Marilyn Monroe people that are talking about this, and I need to verify if it's true or not. But what I did learn from Vince when he talked about the Secret Service is he did address that the Secret Service held a grudge for Kennedy against that, but also they held a grudge against Johnson. Johnson used to invite him out into like the, the White House garden, have them all stand in a circle and piss on their shoes. He used to poop with the door open and have them like talk to him. Then I started hearing accounts of Johnson just walking around naked freely around his daughter and his wife. And his wife says, oh, well, he loved everybody. You know, he loved all people. But I mean, they called him bull balls or something like that because of like they, and he hated it. But he it's, he's the one that installed the buzzer into the White House so the Secret Service could alert him. That when he's having an affair, his wife, if she was coming by, they would alert him because he got caught one time. And it's like I'm learning all this. And I'm like, this is really, really important to the case. And I know it sounds like it doesn't mean anything, but it really does. And it just shows if this is openly being exposed. I mean, if you look at the number of scandals that are going on with Johnson with Life magazine, and then they eventually drop off when Johnson becomes president. I mean, there's motive right there to get rid of Kennedy. If you're already not liking his policies, you said and he made a public statement saying he would keep all of his policies. People like Castro and Khrushchev that send out documents asking who's going to resist Zoom presidency um, under Kennedy's administration, knowing that it was going to be Johnson that was going to take over, who said he was going to keep his policies and he reversed them all. Oh, yeah, he was. Uh, he was a dirty, dirty guy. And uh, and again, the uh, the more one looks into um, LBJ, it's easy easy to see that he was involved in the assassination and i'm i'm headed that way and you know rich bartholomew for instance and and again ed tetro talk about the deep state in texas and how that was a really dirty place and lbj owned texas basically he was was well, from texas he's a texas boy um when it comes to John Keelan, when he did his book about the first generation researchers, and you had him in your film as well, too, I had him on the show to talk about a lot of it. What is your perspective from what the first generation researchers were going through, or just some of the ones that you had in the searchers? I don't know if some of them are not first generation, they might be second generation. I don't know what, what generation we're on. I had a whole gamut of, of, uh, of generational researchers in, in, the original searchers, but uh, um, I was able to interview um, uh, Mark Lane, for instance, and uh, Jim Mars, and uh, 
um, Tink Thompson and other, um, and John Keelan spoke at length about um, Vince Salandria and um, uh, Shirley Martin out in, uh, out in LA. And so, and Ray Marcus in LA, or Shirley Martin was in Oklahoma, I believe, but Ray Marcus was in LA. But, you know, those first generation researchers um, faced just tremendous odds. And they, they took the, uh, the brunt of, of the attacks from uh, not just the Warren Commission, but from the mainstream media um, before the Warren Commission report was even released. They started the day of the assassination studying. How did you choose the ones that you were going to talk to? Like, how do you avoid like, a, I know Judith Ann Baker is someone that people mention. like you should talk to her as like a joke because I, they don't, I don't know if they can trust anything that she says. Like I'm out here trying to talk to everyone that's really done any exploration into the JFK thing. And you can agree or disagree with who I have on about it, but it's just, I need, to, even though I don't agree, like I don't believe in the acoustical evidence, but I think it's, you should know what that is. I think you need to know about the dirty scandals. I think you need to know about everything. And this is all information. Like in the beginning, I think it was you that told me this and also rich told me this was Penn jones was the one that says you find a topic and you research the shit out of it or was that john judge that was Penn jones okay i was right all right i'm on i'm on the ball on this one i'm on the ball you're on um, the ball <laughs> so, so when you pick a certain topic and you research the hell out of it there i mean compared to what we know now I mean, the first generation researchers paved the way, but everything that we know now, there's so much to cover and there's so many aspects, especially if you're new getting into the assassination, which is just like pick a spot, you know, focus in whatever, but at each spot relays insight into the others. So I'm just curious when you made your film, how did you know who you were going to talk to? Was it just the basis of the knowledge that you guys had? I mean, you don't have all the stuff we got from 2021, 2017. I mean, did any of the researchers know about Cuba or Jack Ruby and Cuba gun running? Like, I didn't know that. Oh yeah. Most, most of the researchers I spoke with knew everything about everything. <laughs> they were, you know, they'd been working on the case their entire lives. And, uh, and they were, they were some of the folks who, you know, were responsible for the thousands of pages that people Pride, pride loose from the agencies with FOIA requests and lawsuits. Um, this is all before the um, Assassination Records Review Board and the JFK Act were passed. Um, and and in in a, in one large case, the the important of the importance of the JFK Records Act can't be understated because researchers had the act already drafted and ready to go, waiting for an opportunity for it to get um, into the hands of Congress people. They had tried and tried and tried. The Committee for the Open Archives, um, the, the original COPA, um, Coalition on Political Assassinations Organization, they're responsible for the Assassination Records Review Board being convened because they had the legislation already written. So um, they, they had it ready to go 
And after Oliver Stone's, after the public outrage, after Oliver Stone's JFK came out, um, they had this legislation ready to go and they could get it in hands of Congress people. And, uh, and they, they didn't have, Congress didn't have to spend months and months and months and months writing legislation. It was all there ready to go. And that was because of the first and second generation researchers. Did they all agree with who killed Kennedy? Did they all have different aspects to it? Like I know some believe mafia, some believe Johnson, some believe the military. You obviously believe the military industrial complex, much like myself. I personally do, but not all researchers, you know, it's a, not all researchers believe the same thing. And in an intellectual and academic inquiry, there are always going to be disagreements. And that's just the part of an intellectual inquiry. Um, and people don't have to agree on everything, but as long as the research continues, and as long as we continue to try and get all the documents out um, and hold those accountable for what we can, that's okay. Um, we don't have to, everyone doesn't have to agree on the timing of the coke that Oswald was um, allegedly drinking in the in the second floor lunchroom, for instance, whether he, whether Marion Baker saw him with it or whether he bought it after Marion Baker, Baker saw him, it's irrelevant. Um, the the low nutters accept the fact that that he was drinking a coke, you know, and the uh, that was in the Warren report that he was drinking a coke and the HSCA, he was drinking a coke. Um, and, you know, some researchers don't think it was a Coke. Um, some researchers don't, uh, don't necessarily think that even happened. But these are small things. Um, the larger issue is that he was killed by more than one person. And that inquiry then on an official basis should be reopened. And it's because of the researchers, um, the hardcore researchers of, of whom you've, you've interviewed many and to great, to great success, congrats. Um, it's because of them that we know what we know. Well, I'm trying to, trying to figure it out when I'm just talking to both sides. I've enjoyed my conversations with each side, whether it's Lone Nut or whatever. Um, mostly because it's information, not necessarily, I believe, in a certain direction on things, but it's just trying to fill in the gaps because I'm watching my own interviews and stuff like that. Like Ruth Payne has a very incriminating thing where she has always said, and this on the sixth floor museum, it's on other sites as well, too. She has always said something along the lines of once that happened, me and Marina split ties and we never talked again. Well, I found a document that the Secret Service was watching Marina Oswald and Ruth Payne came to the door to drop off some mail. Now, she said she had no contact with Marina after that day or after whenever Marina left her house and then she moved out. But she did. She wanted to speak with Marina. And Marina refused to speak with Ruth Payne. So now she's I have to throw everything she says out, whether some of it might be true. I just she's not she's not good to me. 
It's just not, you've lied. I, I, I can't trust you now. Same thing with the Warren Commission. The Warren Commission said Marina Oswald was able to point out the faithful rifle. Well, I pulled up in my conversation with Posner, the HSCA, when they interviewed her and they had the court thing about her. She couldn't tell the difference between a rifle and a shotgun. So now you got to throw Marina out. Marina changed her testimony later to the side I agree with, which is that Oswald was a patsy, but got to throw her out. You can't use her. It's just, it's fair game. It's fair game here. And then the Warren Commission. Well, the Warren Commission lied right there. I just said it. Now you can't trust what they said. Whether some so much of it's true. Then I find out Jack Ruby made a statement saying to Jackie, you know, my heart goes out to you. You're welcome at my club anytime. That was a thing from his lawyer. His lawyer thought that would be a good defense against whatever he did. And he said apparently he suffered from like some type of he said he had epilepsy or some type of epileptic shock or something like that that caused him to forget the shot Oswald or something like that. It was something ridiculous. Tom O'Neill said um in a conversation with Joe Rogan where I'm like, man, he exposed the Lu the Luis Joyon West angle of MK Ultra and Jack Ruby. So now I'm I'm kind of filling in these little gaps here where I'm like, okay, so they said cops never hung out at Jack Ruby's club. Well, it doesn't make sense because he's friends with all of Dallas police. And we know because he was inside Dallas police. So I'm just curious when you're doing your own research or your conclusion that you came to from the researchers you've talked to, what is your breakdown from the beginning of the Dallas day on that day to the end? What is the, can you walk me through what you, what you got here? Um, it's a dumb question, sure. but I want to know. Yeah, not sure I understand the question, um, but I guess it's how I reached my own, con my personal conclusion um, after speaking with all the researchers that I've spoken with. Um, you know, every, every researcher is different and every researcher has a different area of, of expertise and inquiry. Some are holistic. Um, that they study every area of inquiry, of, of possible inquiry. Um, others are, are specialists. So like um, um, some have studied, like Joe McBride, uh, who you've had on, um, is an expert on the Tippett murder. And his work is is as good as it gets but he's he spent his his research life um on primarily on the tippet murder and he's the expert on it um and so my my understanding my best understanding of the tippet murder comes from joe mcbride for instance and a lot of his uh and one reason is because a lot of his conclusions have been backed up by other researchers. So, um, you know, that's one reason I believe what I believe about the tip and murder, for instance. Other areas of inquiry, um, you know, John Judge, for instance, had a very holistic view of the assassination. And he more, uh, he, he specifically focused on the why and what we can do about things. Um, and he was very much about empowerment of, of uh, the average person, what we can do. Um, and, uh, and so my understanding of the, of the forces at work that 
that killed the president um, comes from conclusions of JFK, of John Judge, and and his conclusions are backed up by um, hundreds of other res researchers. Um, you know, so it kind of comes like that. We got to find a simple way to explain conspiracy, which is the whole point. Because like when I'm reaching out to people who aren't even JFK related to do a show, they go, oh, sorry, I don't want to do a show. It's a conspiracy show. And it's like I have a thousand something other episodes that are not JFK related. This is relatively only two months in here of just speaking to JFK researchers. But people don't want to get their hands in this thing where they can roll their eyes at. And I go, it really kind of pisses me off when you label this as a conspiracy. It's that word that they're assuming it's it's this flat earth thing. It's not that at all. This is something you can question because the history books are telling you from the Warren Commission's point of view, the first investigation, they did not take account for the AARB or the HSCA. Whether you agree that the HSCA acoustical evidence is valid or not, you got to look at the aspect of what they got in court, that they proved that she could not identify Oswald's rifle. Okay, well, if she couldn't identify a rifle between a shotgun, didn't take account for the sounds of him reloading it on a back porch, which is in the HSCA volume two, then you either throw her testimony out or you look at the Warren Commission where the Warren Commission stated that Marina Oswald was able to identify Lee's faithful rifle. So I get into this aspect. Okay, let's bring it to the backyard photographs. Is it photoshopped? I don't know. I don't know the specifics of how to do that. I've been explained it, but I still don't understand it. So then I go like this. Well, if he's got the rifle in his hands, he's got the fair play for Cuba papers in his, in his hands as well. Soon he's got the revolver on his hip that allegedly killed Tippett. Okay, does any of that mean that he did any of those things? Do I see someone out there who takes a picture with a beer and assume that they drove home? I mean, it's a dumb point, but it's a good one. Whether you want to agree with it or not, I mean, it goes, oh, that's just an excuse. It's like, well, that's if they don't have the evidence and you talk about the rifle, for instance, who do you believe? Do you believe the chief of police that saw the rifle and called it a Mauser? Same with Roger Craig that called it a Mauser. Do you agree with those guys? And then Roger Craig was the only one that doubled down on his statement. But people toss him into the conspiracy bin as well, too, and toss him. He's he was lying. I don't know. I mean, it's it, like Ruth Payne. She lied. I just said that a minute ago. I think everyone, you might mess up on some details of some things, but somebody's covering up some aspect of this and it's whether it doesn't fit your narrative. And that's kind of the most difficult part for new people getting into it. So it's about getting people to understand the idea of conspiracy. It's not the same as a flat earth thing. Yeah, you're, you're completely right. And um, your inquiry into the CIA document 1035-960 is um, commendable and and uh, I guess there are two things that when people ask me whether I'm a conspiracy theorist or not um, because of my work in the JFK assassination and my my interviews with researchers um, I say that no it's it's not an inquiry into conspiracy, it's an academic inquiry. And it's ever-changing, it's ever-growing, and we're learning more and more. And the more we learn about it, the more the conspiracy reveals itself as part of the, the conclusion of, of, uh, of the Kennedy assassination. The other 
place I take them is to that CIA document and that the word conspiracy theorist, the, the entomology of that phrase comes right from that document. It didn't exist before that document. 10, uh, it's 1035, right? 1035960 is the document. Correct. So when I typed in 1095360, which is like a couple numbers switched around, it pulls, I pulled this up on air. It's a CIA document talking about the gateway experience. And it's really, really weird. They looked into like astral projection. They looked into the gateway experience. They looked into holograms. They examined each institution's definition of what these are. And they have drawings of the of the human brain. Like, I think I sent this to myself recently. Like I might be able to pull it up on here. Yeah. And, you know, the third piece that that I didn't mention is that the very first, the very first notion of or suggestion that there was a conspiracy um, to kill JFK was by J. Edgar Hoover the very day of, of the assassination. He said there was no conspiracy to kill the president before any investigation had even started. Well, when they had so Oswald arrested, they were already sending they were already sending memos of Katzenbach and Hoover were already saying we got the assassination of we got Lee Harvey Oswald. And that's the thing about the Warren Commission, it should be to investigate the president's death, but this was Lee Harvey Oswald did it and we're going to show you how. So that's already an issue with the investigation. But this is the document I was mentioning a minute ago. It's this is 10 so I type if you just type in 1095 360, you're going to get this document. I think it's like the fourth one down, and it's an analysis and asse assessment of the gateway process to the commander U.S. Army Operational Group at Fort Meade, Maryland. Okay, so Fort Meade is that movie, Men Who Stared Goats. That's that, that's that, that movie was based on these creating these psychological Jedi warriors at this place. So it's like that's just interesting to me, but what gets like really freaking crazy is if you start looking down you got like all right so we got talks about hypnosis we got talks about transcendental meditation we got photos we got diagrams of a brain we get down to biofeedback um gateway and hemi what I don't know, lamp versus laser um frequency following response role of re re role of resonance um brain stimulation energy entertainment um, consciousness and energy, holograms. I mean, there's there's so much here where I hear people who speak like, you know, like they like patchouli oil and they do all these mmms and ha's and stuff that get related as like crazy, like voodoo magic stuff. And they're looking into it. I mean, self-cognition is a new thing we know about science, but they talk about the conscious energy grid. And I mean, it brings up to this thing of like time-space dimension. I mean, this is a CIA document that is talking about these types of things. And it was an accidental typo when trying to turn up the 1035 document. And the reason why I bring that up, well, first of all, that's really weird how they, that was this Fort Meade was the same place as uh, men who goats creating these psychological warriors. But when it talks about hypnosis, one of the psychiatrists for Jack Ruby was Louise Joy on West, which is tied to MK Ultra. I've spoken to David Talbot. I've spoken to Stephen Kinsner, who wrote Poisoner in Chief. And they talk about these memos between Sidney Gottlieb and Louise Joy on West. Now, Tom O'Neill pulled out his information from the faculty website of Louise Joy on West because he was a psychiatrist. Or he was this practicing teacher. You know, he eventually did an interview with them before he even wrote about the Manson murders. Um, which the guy was just talking about like 
people's crazy obsession with celebrities and the risk with uh, celebrities. Um, but he's, was very, he's a very good hypnotist. And one of the things he's credited for was people who fought in the Korean war. Um, we believed at the time that these, these soldiers that were coming to us were brainwashed that we used biological weapons in Korea. And it was a brainwashing thing. The Koreans, they said, implanted this into their heads and you need to unhypnotize them. Well, new documents show out now that we actually did use these biological weapons and it was against the Geneva Convention. So we brainwashed these people to forget what we did over there. And that was one of his tasks. Now you have this guy who gives Jack Ruby a flu shot. Jack Ruby admits that he, he, they gave him cancer. And then in his last like two to three weeks, they give him over 126 x-rays. Like there's just the strangeness. There's that aspect of what Joe Green calls the weirdness. You know, this aspect of like, why are all these things like lining up in this way? And, you know, that's a deeper, darker road for any new audience to go down. And it takes a lot of like documents showing for people to start believing you and all these types of craziness that you end up just wanting to shoot yourself in the head uh, because it's just too complicated. But there to say that it's like this definitive and it's this closed. And like when I come across like I'm not a. I'm not a Bugalosi fanboy. I'm really not. I have documents to show that he create he committed perjury in the Manson trial. He put a prosecutor on the defendant side. Um, he also like covered up a lot of scandals that were going on with him. So immediately, like you're not going to point out corruption if it fits your side. So we have the lone nutters that will quote him and they'll say this. Well, look, you got to represent evil wherever evil is. That means if a CT is evil, like I have thoughts on Mark Lane. You interviewed him. Did you ask him why he got fired from being Oswald's attorney? I did not. I did not. And I didn't ask him about um, his participation in Jonestown, his, his representing um, Jim Jones. Um, you know, that wasn't part of my investigation into my movie. It was about the first generation researchers and the second generation, and then to expose people to, there's a whole world out there of investigation into the murder of JFK. But no, I didn't, I did not ask Mark Lane about any of those, those potentially really dirty areas. Um, yeah, it just wasn't part of my movie. I, I get it. It's, it's definitely got to be difficult questions to ask as well, too. Some people probably even want to bring it up, but I'm just wondering what this relationship is with Marguerite Oswald. I mean, with Marina, I, someone had to be given Margaret all this information, whether it was Lee's brother or whether it was Marina or whether it was Lee himself, because she knew a lot of stuff about the guy. Like knew she, she knew, I think she never wavered from his, her opinion on him being central intelligence agency. She always defended him. And it's like, that's what a mother does, obviously. I mean, every photo that you see, if it's Ruth Payne uh, in her house, you know, she's like on her knees and she's like talking to Marina who's on the couch and Marguerite's there with a tissue over her nose. You know, she's crying. She lost her son. You know, she never wavered from her stance that Oswald was Central Intelligence Agency. But then you get these areas of when he goes to Soviet Russia, what happened over there? I mean, I've heard people say that they didn't trust him. I've heard that he said that he was, you know, wanting to tear up his citizenship, but they wouldn't allow him to do it. And then it's like there's just a lot of weird areas where it's like specific 100% left or 100% right where it's like it's got to be a, a middle ground. There's got to be something there where we're not getting or I'm not understanding. 
Yeah, well, I think in, in any area of, of critical inquiry, there are always going to be holes. There are always going to be holes. And there are also going to be complicated figures involved. And I think that that's where you're, um, you, you know, you ask me about Mark Lane and, and questions I asked him are completely valid. Um, for instance, I also didn't ask um, Tink Thompson about Vince Salandria's um, um, thinking that, that Tink Thompson had been compromised and was part of an intelligence operation. Um, yeah, so I didn't, I just, um, six seconds in Dallas, for instance, and Tink's important, critically important work with that book is what drove me to interview him. And, and, and that so many researchers um, disagreed with Solandria and, and uh, did not think that, that Tink was uh, involved in, in, uh, in intelligence. But, you know, again, it gets into a critic, every area of critical inquiry, whether it's political assassinations or scientific inquiry into something seemingly benign. Um, there are always going to be major disagreements between between researchers. Um, well, one thing I want to make me, well, one thing I want to make clear is that I wasn't roasting you for not asking those questions. Oh, oh, I, get, I okay, understand. Because I get people make a documentary, and then you don't know how many comments people write. Like, why don't you say this or why don't you say that? It's like, well, you can't ask every single damn question that comes to everybody's mind. Everybody's thinking on a different level. Yeah, yeah, you absolutely can, and you have to stay focused on what your story is, and you can't interview everybody and. That's one of the, well, you can, um, but for, a, you know, for an hour and a half documentary that's trying to cover a lot of stuff, it's impossible to, to interview everybody. And that was part of my reason to want to do a follow-up to my film. Um, so I could interview a lot of researchers that, that I hadn't interviewed before. Um, one thing I, I want to say that, um, I've been using the term lone nutter and, and we in the community use, we in the research, critically re, critical research community use that term a lot. And um, I think I would rather use counter critics and, and critics for con conspiracy theorists and counter critics for um, lone nutters. And I find myself using low nutters all the time because it's a shorthand, but um, I think it's more accurate to, to, uh, to note researchers as critics of the Warren report and counter critics as people who have gone after the critics and ignore um, all the research that they've done. I think that's a, it's, it might seem like a small distinction, but it's, it's something that I've found has been more, more accurate over the years, if that well, makes sense. There's a difference between, you know, discrediting somebody or like we, the lone nutter term and conspiracy theorist term 
whether you call it CTLN, whatever you want. I mean, people just don't let it bother them at points, but I mean, it is a subjective term. You're trying to label somebody as something and you're trying to make them sound insane because it doesn't fit your side, but it might fit the other person's side and also their base group as well too. I mean, that's the weird thing is like, I have a question for you, Robert Roden. How many lawsuits has he been in and has he won? Is that not weird to anybody that like he's not getting like, caught in any of these like i don't know what he's being even in court for is it it's him right that's i'm not mistaken he's oh yeah okay oh yeah and i've lost count on on how many lawsuits he's he's been in but he's won them all he's got to be doing something right if you're winning that many you're not getting pinned on a single thing mm -hmm. yeah and i think he is and uh you know his his research is is uh has been seminal over the course and i mean is is there uh is there anyone on the planet who knows more than bob groden about the assassination i don't know what he knows i know yeah get him on um, I, I tried i've tried okay um yeah and his book absolute proof is something that i think is a book that everybody should have. Um, what you know, What did he do for the research community? Like, could you give me an example of one of the things he uncovered? Oh my gosh, he was he, his work into the Zapruder film was the first critical research into the film. He got a copy, and he's he's the one who is responsible for getting it out in 1975 to the public. On the Geraldo show. Oh, okay. Um, I know you're and so, yeah, that's Bob Groden. And um, he's responsible for just reams and reams of books and documents he's, he uncovered. And um, to, for me to even try to, to list all the accolades of of Bob Groden and his importance to the critical research community, um, I, I, it would be just a massive understatement. Um, you know, um, it is weird that they had three takes of the Zapruder film, and then Life magazine buys the Zapruder film and then shelves it for a long time. Like, did anybody question if that was a shell company of the government? Like, that was a CIA asset or something like that? Like, not just a media close relationship, but just a shell company where you had people oh, that life. Yeah, they had people that worked there. I mean, I, I had a couple guests talk about the media manipulation of the government. I mean, influencing scripts, small stuff like small scale propaganda stuff when it comes to like, we're going to common examples, Walt Disney, we're going to insert FBI agents in Mickey Mouse cartoons. Now, before I say any of this, go to the FBI website, look at the Walt Disney file. It's 700 pages. And the first page starts off with just inserting FBI agents in Mickey Mouse cartoons. Then you get to page 600 something and it gets very, very dark. And these are letters to J. Edgar Hoover over, I think this is a period of a year or so. They developed a very, very close relationship, um, him and Hoover. Hoover actually signing personal messages when in the beginning he was just sending memos. Um, it leads down another route. There's uh, the FBI. It was the Hollywood 10, which is the FBI. Hoover um, hired a bunch of agents to start investigating top Hollywood officials and 
basically making a profile on communism, which can lead to another point I'm going to bring up later. Um, but 600 pages into the Walt Disney file, it's, hey, ratting out what employees who are striking up labor unions, calling them communists and having them interrogated by the FBI, all because Walt Disney didn't like his employees rising up or wanting more wages. It was a way to silence them by labeling them a communist. I mean, that's real documents that's on the FBI website that will tell you those things. And also there's on the NSA, they have bigger files on the FBI and CIA about JFK that are not on any of the archives on the National Archives of JFK. And they talk about something's going on with the FBI and CIA. There's a cover up. There's this type of stuff. And those are very early documents because you could say that they changed maybe later. But none of these military industrial complex are running like the way people think the government runs. They all don't talk to each other. They were all doing separate investigations into the Kennedy assassination, and nobody was giving anybody any information that they were working on. So that's an issue. That's a very crucial point of evidence and a very good point to bring up when you mention about the military industrial complex. But you tackled an angle that not only did I ask advice for the project I'm working on, because I respect yours, your film so much, but also the angle we talked about on your first episode, the communism angle. That's where I've been diving into. What is the fear of communism? How do we understand communism? You checked the Air Force flight logs. And you found out that they were taken whatever the day before, the night before. There's no military action there. And you got that from your dad who worked in the military. But you mentioned to me about, you know, Russian general on one side, American general on the other. And they just fly and keep veening off and veening off and just doing this over and over again. Like whoever steps on my territory, we're going to shoot. And that's what's going to happen. This next world war is going to happen. So take yourself for the time period. What's this fear of communism? Well, there was Vietnam and there was Cuba. That's what people know about. But then I spoke to someone, Greg, I'm going to mess up his last name, Paul Rian, I think his name is. He mentions Indonesia, another battleground where there was a conflict between JFK and Dulles. And you start getting into this aspect where he brought up, everyone assumes when you say communism, you mean Russia. But no one ever thought there was another form of communism. And that was the communism that they were labeling in Indonesia. But the thing I think about communism is you can't be like, hardcore religious. And I think the, this area was, they were religious. So the government just goes, oh, well, there's another form of communism. And you just realize now this term that they label something as being a communist and they've been inflating it so much to be is now this thing that now is, oh, there's another aspect to it. There's another communism. You're saying there's two shadow men now. And now that's where the holes should have started ripping apart at the seams where you should have been noticing the BS that was getting fed to you. Yeah. Um... The, the institutional fear of communism was, uh, was palpable. And, uh, and that's why, you know, um, the warming of relations that Kennedy and Khrushchev had started um, was so threatening to the military industrial complex and also other institutions, FBI, CIA, um, and, uh, and even the mob in their their involvement in in Cuba, you know, they wanted their, for instance, the mob wanted their casinos back in Cuba, and that wasn't going to happen under communism, under under uh, under Castro's count communism. So, so yeah, um, if you've, if you know, one area of inquiry that that is so interesting is the uh, canon of letters between Kennedy and Khrushchev and their warming of relations between the United States and, and, uh, 
and Russia and the Soviet Union. Just an amazing uh, trove of literature. And um, we get, we see now that, that there was, that we were, our relations were warming. Kennedy had talked about peace with the Soviet Union, collaboration in the space race. Um, he had already signed the nuclear test ban treaty. And, uh, and we were, you know, if, to think about the latter half of the 20th century without the Cold War is, is almost unthinkable because it was such an omnipresent part of my childhood um, and through college up until, up until the fall of the wall. Um, we had a, a, brief, a brief moment of detente with, with the Soviet Union and then Russia under Yeltsin. But then once, once Putin got in, things started chilling up again. Um, but, uh, but, you know, the warming of relations with the Soviet Union, you're right, um, was it cannot, the importance of that cannot be understated. How much of it was a surface thing though? Because that's the weird part about like when I talked to Larry about uh, Cuba and Castro, he said, yeah, Kennedy was making backdoor deals with Castro. You know, if we could do it by peace, that's a good thing. But he also was accepting the fact that one of these assassination attempts did work on Castro. So like a lot of it was like, hey, I got two plans here. If one works and the other one doesn't, you know, whichever one's going to be the one that works. And I look at Khrushchev and if you talk about letters with Khrushchev, I mean, they could be saying one thing as well, too. But I just I don't know what else is going on. You know what I mean? Like, what's is everyone aware? Like, I think we have a large area of paranoia in the world where it's not just our country doing something. It's other countries doing something as well, too. And that paranoia, I mean, everyone's got a backup plan. Everyone's got their you know, it, their finger's not on the button, it's their toe that's on the button. And they're just waiting for something to happen because you can't really trust people you don't live next to or you don't know that don't share the same air. I think it's Kennedy's quote that's the best is that I'd rather my kids be red than dead. You know, that's a impactful thing. I think they both kind of realize the issue when it comes to nu nuclear weapons. And that's when the ban treaty happened. But a lot of that, you know, that was surface ban. That wasn't, they still test nukes underground. I didn't know that. And that's still something that's being debated today if they should ban underground nuclear testing as well too. I mean, that's still getting pushed through. And it's just like, you're learning about all this stuff and it's like, everyone agreed not to do biological and chemical weapons. They all did a sign off on that. And I think the reason why was they realized that it was dangerous and we don't need to be continuing down this road. But the truth to it and the evidence that shows it is that it was way more expensive to produce and store all those biological and chemical weapons than they had need for. That's, I mean, we used it against the Germans. The Germans just put on gas masks and fucking it was useless. It's only good for a contained area. That's why when we have anthrax attacks or anthrax bombs, we have simulations on those. They're only good for small buildings or poison. Poison's a good example as well, too, like poison attempts against Castro. But for a large-scale battle like they were using it for in the beginning, it was just ineffective. So under the guise of we're going to do this because it's better for both people, they just banned them outright. 
when really it's like, good thing we did that. We were losing a lot of money trying to funnel into that. But people still worked on it. We know Russia experimented with nerve agents long after they said that they stopped. You know, we experimented with things long after we said that we stopped. And you just realize like everyone's this, this fuel of paranoia, this fuel of the other person's doing the thing that we said we weren't going to do. It's like a surface handshake. And then it's like behind closed doors, you're doing something completely different, which just makes me question the Kennedy thing a lot more. I mean, if you see people openly, you know, evidence of like I pulled up the LBJ thing with the photo. You got to be a real piece of shit to not hide your dark side. And that man was not hiding his dark side. I mean, asking a, a wife to leave her husband's body, whether I, I, I believe that the relationship was on the rocks, whether you want to agree with me on that or not. I just believe they probably had some tensions there. Sure. And I only use that because the Larry King interview with Connolly, where um, not Connolly, Connolly's wife, where she talked about getting her body over her husband and she turned around and saw Jackie on the back of the car. Why wasn't she on top of her husband was what she asked herself. And she said that in an interview. And I think I, your priorities probably are a little bit different if you're mad at someone or if your relationship's on the rocks, which is my evidence. But obviously, it's speculation. We don't have to even go down that route. But I just say, when you look yeah, at I don't know when you look at these photos, when I listen to the recording calls of the White House tapes and everything else that was going around in there, you're getting a different aspect of things, and it's very eerie because, I mean, if you're learning the history from the Warren Commission and the Warren Commission had some flaws in it, and you're teaching that to kids, and a kid gets a shitty first take of a Zapruder film as their introduction into JFK. And then they never hear about it again through the rest of their high school or whatever career, like I was, then they look into it and like, Oh my God, there was so much more here. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, you know, to touch on what you were talking about earlier. Um, and I don't want to go keep going on about the Kennedy Khrushchev relationship, but it's, it's important to know that, that, those letters were were behind the scenes um, and back channel. That was all back channel communication. And um, all these steps towards detente were in, were um, intimidating and and threatening and frightening to the institutions that. Um, to the military industrial complex, to big money, to the financial um, world, to the uh, the oil world, to big oil, to, you know, it, it was threatening to everybody. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Kennedy had, he just, he knew that he didn't have control of the CIA. And didn't have control of the FBI and that um, he was a man alone and Khrushchev felt the same way. And so um, what, you're right that the United States almost had a dual policy towards Castro in the waning days of the Kennedy administration, but the, uh, the assassination attempts and, and the desire to kill Castro, for instance, wasn't coming from Kennedy himself. It was coming from people in that were in his government, but it was not approved by Kennedy or the Kennedy brothers for that matter. Yeah. I um you know, interesting distinction, isn't it? Alan Dulles 
And I, I believe that there's a lot, there's a mafia, there was the government. But the weird part is, is when we talk about the government and the mafia, we have to realize at one point that they connected. They were working together with beneficial aspects and necessarily didn't mean that they were both buddy-buddy, but they were working together on so many things to get what they wanted out of Cuba. And I think that's important to bring up. Also, Operation Northwoods is a very damning document when it comes to blowing up an airliner and blaming it on the Cubans. Not only did they have a document for that, but there was also a document that during the space race, when we launched one of these rocket ships, if it was going to explode or something went wrong, you blame it on Castro, you blame it on Cuba. And that's a very dirty tactic, because if you look at the overall effects of that, you are now brainwashing a population to think that we need to now strike or we need to now attack because they attacked us first. And it gets into these positions of war. I mean, what is seen as a slant in today's time? It's all cyber warfare. That's the new that's the new playing field. We don't really need to fight a whole bunch of weapons, you know, do large scale battles besides the Ukraine issue or something like that. A lot of it's just done stealing intelligence, espionage. I just had a guest um, speak about. Uh, government influence and in institutions, um, higher education institutions, hiring of people to join the intelligence front, get into public relations, go over to China and go get us our intel. And it could be something as small as I need you to write a paper on Cuba. OK, well, I can write a paper on Cuba. How much? Well, we're going to give you a thousand dollars. Awesome. I'll write a paper on Cuba for a thousand dollars. They write that paper. They give it to them. Here's a thousand bucks. They come back a week later, say, hey, we need you to go uh, spy on the intelligence agency over there. What do you mean? Well, you already accepted government funding once, and we can pin you on that. And that's not going to look good on your you know, educational career, your educational resume. You took government funding? What? What are you talking about? And then you just become locked in their pocket. And this guy brought up some pretty good documents to bring that up. And that's the same thing with the movies, man, the propaganda in movies. You realize it's tied everywhere. Go back to Life magazine. Was it a shell company? They had all the media people in their pockets, allegedly, giving them star witnesses to interview. It's hard to think that there wasn't more deeper control in this aspect where people said what they needed to say and got away with it. Because if you look at today's time, I'm seeing articles now saying conspiracy theories on the rise. And then you click into it, the alleged assassin Oswald. I think the public's opinion is changing, whether they make a shitty title on an article or not. 64%, I think it was, didn't believe with the official statement of the Warren Commission. And we have so much more evidence now where I feel like that scale is tipped in the conspiracy favor. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, from day one, the, the public, you know, a vast number of people have doubted the Warren, Warren report. When it first came out, of course, people trusted their government. But, but over the years, more and more and more people um doubted the official story and um and more importantly wanted a new inquiry wanted a, a new official inquiry into the assassination um and that's one of the many things that that spawned the hsca investigation in the 70s um and you know i'm i know you've done your work into the uh your your study into the HSCA and saw how it was compromised and um, Richard Sprague was removed and Blakey essentially took over and um, we got this watered down investigation that still concluded that Oswald was involved and that there was a probable conspiracy um, and not, not a full conspiracy. Um, and that's where we, that's where we stand until all the documents are released. 
you know, um, and we learn more and more and more about it. But I, I just, I, I used to think that the argument of the documents, what else is going to be left to release? I just don't know what they have. I mean, if you look at like 5% of the archives is still left to be released, and you calculate how much is in a percent. I think it's over like five million. It's not 5 million documents. I don't think it is. And that just depends on what's a verified document. I mean, is it all redacted? Is it a one page thing that just says memo to whoever, and then it's nothing else? Or is it a full page thing? The crucial, everyone's looking for that smoking gun. And I'm like, well, the smoking guns the case. I mean, looking through it, I mean, it's a, the reason why it's lasted this long is that there's a lot of things you can, can question here. Whether you admit Oswald did it or not, there's serious government corruptibility that goes on. And how extent does that government corruptibility go? I mean, if you look at the Dallas police force, that was a question I had a lot to a lot of researchers. The politics in Dallas wanted for treason posters that I don't know why, but it's in Weisberg's archive and has General Walker's name on it. So whether he created those and then you got this aspect of, OK, well, if Oswald hated Kennedy so much, why did he kill the guy that was making wanted for treason posters of the man that he, he allegedly killed? And then he went to assassinate that guy. And then you look at the witness statements, which there were witnesses in that area that did not see one person. They saw multiple people. Then you look at Marina Oswald saying, well, he talked about trying to kill Os kill Oswald. And they go, well, how do you think he got the gun there? And then she questioned herself. She goes. Well, now that I think about it, it'd be weird if he took the bus and he had a gun. So then did Frazier drop him off? Did Frazier show up with him? I don't know. There's a rambler somewhere in this story. Somebody saw this thing. Roger Craig did. A couple witnesses did. A couple people saw someone that didn't look like Oswald on the sixth floor. I mean, there's just there's not conclusive evidence and the lack of information, depending on the investigation of the Warren Commission, had flaws in it. Now, no, I'm not giving, you know, Monday night quarterbacking or whatever you want to say that you can do on like the 9-11 Commission has that, too. Things we know. I read the 983 report of the 9-11 Commission when I did a 9-11 episode. It was six hours long. Um, it talks in hindsight and foresight or you can't look from what we know now compared to understanding it back then but there was issues with the tsa that they should have flagged some things that didn't happen there was a bunch of other issues smaller issues that weren't focused on which in your normal job process would be that now you can say that could be lazy tsa saying ah eh, go ahead could be something like that but there were some issues there and it's the same thing with the jfk case there are issues whether it's dallas police whether it's news reporting i always found it weird um you look at the photos of the news reporting where their cameramen are taking pictures of the damn it. I'm going to blank on their last names. The witnesses that were laying on the hill. Oh, the. Um, um, <laughs> Newman, Newman, Bill, uh, Newman, Bill Newman, Newman. I got it. I got the last name at least. Yeah. Bill Newman. The media, the media was just taking photos of them. And, you know, Rich told me, he goes, yeah, well, they were supposed to keep the cameras rolling no matter what happened. I'm like, it doesn't matter. There are shots being fired and you're taking an Instagram picture of your, like you're taking a picture of your food, like whether it's media reporting or not. And I had a guy who created Holland Sphere, um, Holland Sphere. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's like three circles, one little small circle in the middle. And it's like, it's once say conspiracy, but it's controversial and it's all these, it's three labels for something. And 
the way that it happens now, it seems like a lot of those have flipped around and it was media reporting. And his example was when I created this, a lot of this was because the Vietnam, because the Vietnam war, when it was broadcasted, was the first time ever on television besides like a Jack Ruby shooting or something. But the Vietnam war was something that really broke the boundaries of television. It was showing a lot of very graphic war scenarios that brought it into your home rather than something you did not see that happened overseas. And I mean, there's an area of media reporting that kind of changed as well, too. Like, I'm interested in all of these little aspects. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's very interesting. And, you know, the documents, looking into the documents, um, God, who was it? Um, Norman Mailer, who said, it, you know, after this, it's like leaving a, I believe his analogy was, it's like leaving a Mercedes in, in the Bronx, for 50 years, um, what's going to be left, you know, what's going to be left of the Mercedes, all the tires are going to be gone, every piece of engineering is going to be ripped out. But that still doesn't mean that we haven't learned um, a massive amount about the uh, about the assassination from the documents. And, and what's, what's also instructive is all the all the files that they admitted that have been admitted that they destroyed the secret service admitted before the AARB um, that they uh, had destroyed their documents. I mean, it's right there in the, in the report. Well, even at the bottom of some of those memos, they say destroy when no longer needed. Oh yeah. That was some CIA documents, but the secret service documents they destroyed before the, Records Review Board could could even look at them. And recently, the CIA did, um, admitted that one of the volumes on Oswald of their records has gone missing. They can't find it anymore. Well, that's very convenient, isn't it? And so of the of the. Uh, of the. I guess people estimate that there are over 50,000 documents still outstanding. Um, you know, just how many are we going to get Jesus. and did what's going to be in those? Did I say 5 million? Yeah, but I think it's 1% of what, 13 million pages. Okay. Yeah. So I was way, I was way off. So numbers yeah, don't yeah, lie. That's cool. Um, I, I see like this is what who did you get close with when you were in, interviewing like did you get coffee with any of these people did you have a sit down like when I talked to William Law and he talks about meeting some of these like Cybert and O'Neill and doing these interviews about some of the people that worked on the medical evidence and everything like that it's that like those stories or those relationships you end up talking with them a little bit before, so you can get the camera rolling did you have any of these or did you just sit them down exclusively do the interview and that was it like you had to get close with John Judge I've heard you mention him a lot of times Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, part of being a documentary filmmaker and, and doing it right is you have to build relationships. And that's one reason I allowed the searchers to take so long to to be made, because early on, I realized that, number one, I had to understand what researchers had to go through. So I started my own inquiry that I told you about with my dad. Um, but then you just have to build relationships. And in the documentary film world, that's what's called porch time, sitting down with people and just talking. And 
building rapport and building trust. And uh, I think I was able to get some of the intimate, um, really intimate interviews I got and really get backstory to who people were and what their what they did when they were young, simply because I had spent spent time just talking to people, having coffee, like you said. Um, um, I was really close with John Judge, and I agree with um, a majority, if not almost all of his conclusions, for instance. Um, and that's because I spent so much time with him. I spent more time with him than anyone else. But like Grover Proctor is a friend of mine. He lives just um, 20 minutes away from my house. And so we've been able to spend a lot of time together talking about the case. And, and so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's important for, for people researching the case to spend time with people. I never got to, a chance to spend time with witnesses, official witnesses, but I've spent time with other researchers and um, people, some, you know, I spent a lot of time with Mark Lane um, in, at his home in Charlottesville um, after he had left New York. Did he seem like a bad guy? No, he seemed like a great, a great guy. And, uh, and ultimately knowledgeable about every aspect of the case. And, uh, um, but he was also a, a, a lawyer who liked the spotlight, you know, and you can, you know, as we get older, we learn that there are good and bad points to everybody. Um, you know, no one's all good, no one's all bad. We, Good people do bad things, bad people do good things, and where people lie on that spectrum is up for debate. The example I use, and I swear this is the last time I'll ever use it, is that your history is red like Superman, but the reality is that Superman smokes cigarettes and he's a bit of a drinker. Um, you have to learn to accept that just because as a society, I mean, we're lost at so many aspects in our life when it comes. And I've said this and people have heard me rant about this plenty of times about the historical record of things, whether you agree that it's right, whether you agree it's not. I agree it has a lot of flaws in it and it needs to be known that way. But when it's so far from the base of what the truth is, the one you're being told and you have people that freak out that George Washington's teeth weren't made of cherry wood, they were made of slave teeth and people just lose their minds. That's dangerous. That's very dangerous when you add those little adjustments to make your story a little bit better. I get it's good for the history books, but it's not good for people's psyche and the society that you're trying to build. I mean, you don't want to know that you're on a foundation of sand. That's the worst thing in the world. And that's what a lot of people are kind of like this whole relook through history, this whole different perception that we're having. One thing I don't get is that why the hell is the community so divided on the JFK topic, but not a damn person is divided on the MLK topic? What is that about? There's never I've I've entered the MLK era thing and it's not like the community is not telling you go fuck yourself. But the JFK community is. And I'm like is it cuz it's a race thing? Like it's more believable to think that he'd be killed by the FBI or something like that and then JFK is a harder topic. MLK is more involved in our society, I would say. It's probably more talked about than the JFK topic is, at least amongst normal average people unless you're researching into it. But I consider the JFK topic a turning point in history where you could predict the Robert Kennedy and then you can get 
down to the MLK, you can get down to Malcolm X, you can get down to a bunch of other stuff that's sort of going on in our society. That was the turning point. So it's like, I mean, I don't know. Why, why when I go on the FBI website, RFK, there's articles all on RFK. Was that the FBI's investigation? Why do they have articles on MLK? The CIA only has articles on JFK. They don't have anything on MLK and RFK, but the FBI has them on their site. That's weird to me too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those are all really interesting areas of inquiry. Um, and I think that there's, there's a larger community studying the JFK assassination. And the larger the community, the more disagreement and contention you're going to have. It's just a larger community, I think. And I don't think that has anything to do with with uh, anything other than it was the first and seminal assassination, major assassination of the '60s. Um, it wasn't the first, but it was it was the major. Then and, and and like you said, a turning point for our country. And so you're going to have people disagreeing, and when people become wed to their to their theories, um, you're going to have contention. I wouldn't necessarily say I have theories, but I definitely have a lot of questions. And that's good. That's good. Out of all the people that you talked to, you talked about John Judge, you grew closer to him, Mark Lane a little bit as well, too. Um, who was one that you didn't like just get, get along with that well? You just felt like you were might be stealing their time it just seemed uninterested it doesn't have to be uh, a researcher it can be anybody that you i don't know that you interviewed or did anything for your film yeah well you know i never really experienced that um simply because the researchers that i ended up interviewing i i had spent time with and uh and gain trust and hopefully gain respect but regardless they all knew everybody that's in my movie knew how much i respected them um i didn't get i spent a a long day at tink thompson's house in uh, marin county um didn't get to spend as much time as i'd hoped to as i would have liked to with gary aguilar uh, spent a day with Jim Mars at his ranch outside Fort Worth um, and didn't get to spend as much time with Jim, Jim DiEugenio and Lisa Pease as I would have liked to. Um, but all of that didn't, it, there was no reason for that other than just lack of time and resources. You know, some, a lot of them live on the West Coast being a self-funded documentary here on the East Coast, you know, it's easier for me to go down the road a little bit or drive to DC than it was to take flights to San Francisco and LA all the time. I guess more what I was aiming at was Sixth Floor Museum. Did you have any problems with them with the film? Oh, oh <laughs> I, I got it. Yes. I just got an email response while we were talking, and it's not a good one. It's a very lengthy thing about the usage of content and things that you know they say that they own. So it's like, okay, I'll have to read that at some point. Well, ownership is uh, ownership is debated when when it comes to the Sixth Floor Museum. Um, 
the uh, the Center for the Study of the Public Domain at Duke University School of Law um, thinks, you know, when when I brought up the topic of the search of the Zapruder film being in the searchers, they said, no, this is classic, classic fair use. And and there couldn't be a bigger, they said that there couldn't be a bigger example of, of fair use than the Zapruder film in the canon of American cinema. Um, so I would say, yes, if you feel you need to use the Zapruder film in your film, use it and use it under fair use. And as far as everything else they claim to own, um, if it has to do with the killing of our president, it can be used under fair use. They're, they're intimidation tactics that they're using, but um, I would, in, I'll send you more information on that, but I would really, really consider um, using them under fair use. The JFK library was pretty open about the usage of content for them. The audiovisual per person I spoke to and then another archivist um, talked about, like I asked to interview one of the archivists just so I can just talk to him about it and ask questions. Um, I also reached out to people on the Warren Commission, the assistant staff, which is interesting that every single one of the assistant staff, the ones that are alive, happen to all be lawyers. Um, it's very suspicious. Um, imagine that though you're a kid in school and someone plucks you out of obscurity and says we're gonna you're gonna be part of the warren commission your literal career whether you stick with it or not is built on a foundation of lies whether you agree with it or not but some of them you know they suggested conspiracy some of the guys do say and they do write and talk about conspiracy aspects to things and i'm like okay so it's not like every single person believes the official story of things but you know when it comes like the jfk library they seem more open than anything. I think they're in, I don't know if it's DC or not. I don't know. Just the JFK archive library is what it's called. They have like a bunch of, they have a bunch of good footage that gets donated to them as well too. Yeah. So I go, I mean, they're open to talking about it and they're open to whatever their stuff gets used for. I'm like, if anything to spread awareness, whether you agree that it's conspiracy or not, if anything, it's just spreading out more of a message of Kennedy to a bunch of people. I mean, it's not creating a false narrative. It's just talking in deep about a horrible event in our history. And our history books do not do a great job of talking about that. I mean, I've learned more from your film. I've learned more from Jim DiGino's film. I've learned more from watching other films on YouTube with a mafia angle, with the Warren Commission angle, which is I, all these types of stuff. Where I'm just like, it, anything, it just it piqued my curiosity. Did anything get people in, interested into it like I am? Yeah. And the more, the more information that you can get, the better understanding you're going to have, not just of the Kennedy assassination, but of the mechanisms of power in our country. And it also informs how one looks at other issues like 9-11, like for instance. Um, you know, I'd, we that's a whole series of other shows we could get into, but the one thing about the 9-11 report that, that should make um everyone paused is that they didn't include any of their supporting documents the warren commission did they have all you know tens and tens of volumes of supporting documents to their initial um first volume report 
there are no, we don't get to see the supporting documents um, to the 9-11 report. And that should give us all pause. That's scary. We should see that. We should be able to see that. I don't, I, what, what scares me about the 9-11 thing is, is that like nobody questions the fact that apparently we just let Osama bin Laden go out to sea. Like it was his religious thing to just drift off out to sea. Was it Osama? I think it was Osama. Yeah. That's fucking weird. You know what I mean? Like nobody questioned that when that happened. Like after all that, you're going to be like, you're just, let's, we're going to grant him this last privilege. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's a controversial take and we don't have to get into that, but I think there's just a lot of stuff that doesn't add up and it's kind of where you can start. I mean, it's why some of the biggest controversial issues are somehow linked together somehow. I mean, with one commonality, whether it's like we're coming across the A team, you know, let's use David Talbot's reference of Dulles gathering the team to assassinate Kennedy. I mean, Luis Joyon West was part of MK Ultra. That came out because we have receipts that MK Ultra exists. It's not a conspiracy anymore. It's real. Okay. So that was dismissed for the longest time and no one bought into it. Okay. Well, West was the same therapist for Ruby and also the same therapist for Manson. Okay. Well, if he's part of MK Ultra, Alan Dulles was in charge of MK Ultra with Richard Helms. So why didn't that, even the courts talked about they should have disclosed that that psychiatrist was mk ultra but they didn't know because it was top secret so now you have secret top top secret clearance where what a couple individuals know alan dulles 100 percent knows about it if he's the one that created the thing so you get into this area of like somebody's not the warren commission wasn't 100 percent in on what was going on and that's why you have people that were doubting it that's why you have you know certain people that didn't want to be a part of it anymore i don't necessarily think it's because they we're being asked to cover up something. I think it's just because they're like, Hey, you're not doing this the way we should be doing this. And they had, yeah, they didn't interest. believe in the process. Yeah. So, I mean, whether that's the CIA, I have documents to show you that the there's time magazine and life magazine all said the same thing about CIA was withholding documents from the Warren commission. I mean, there's documents about Garrison who I haven't even looked into yet. Documents saying Garrison's attempt to embarrass the agency. That's not good in our archives. And that's in the 2021 section. When they're saying that about you, that's not good. Whether it's new documents now, but back when the documents were written were back then. So you're like, okay, if the government's talking about you in this sense, that's when you can question, you know, maybe I should not leave the house for a couple of days. Let me I should just make sure everyone knows I'm in a great place in my life and make sure that my car works perfectly fine. You know, like that. So doing that type of stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, def most definitely, most definitely. But, you know, I think, again, it's the massive amount of information out there. Um, in any area of inquiry, you know, your, your, med your use of, your discussion of uh, MKUltra is a perfect example. There are just so many links and ties between so many different agencies when it comes to MK Ultra, and it took what fifty years for it to be revealed and accepted as fact. Um, you know, one of the things I use that to illustrate this is that forever, for fifty plus years, the United States government um, claimed that that Area Fifty One didn't exist, that the Groom Lake facility didn't exist 
They just said, nope. And people would be standing there going, I'm looking at it right now. And the government would say, nope, doesn't exist. And then finally they came around and said, okay, it exists. Because people tried meanwhile, to Meanwhile, all it. those people had been called crazy and insane. Well, people tried to storm it and the government was like, we're going to have to either shoot some people or tell them it exists. <laughs> right. That's like the fire festival too, right? Yeah, I had a guy on my show who uh, has been, he lives right by Area 51, like I think it's a couple miles. He lives in that town, but he's been listening to radio frequencies. He has a whole site called Dreamland Resort where he just, he goes, there's no alien stuff. It's just really high tech government equipment, like U2s and all those types of things. And you start looking at the number of U2 explosions and all these types of scenarios that are going on with other countries. Like that's a weird vehicle that somehow tied in with the CIA and the FBI and just all these high tech government accessibility tactics, whatever you want to say. It's a lot of weird, interesting lines and places. And the fact that people either go, you can either sniff the line or you just dust it off. And I'm like, well, what the fuck? Can I do both? I want to do both lines. I want to sniff one and dust the other one, you know? And, and this brings us right back to Joe Green's weirdness. Yes, the weirdness and it's the everywhere. high weirdness. I'm going to get him to talk about some of the weirdness because he mentioned some things off air. And I hope he does get mad listening to this, but he mentioned some things. I'm like, I got to get you saying that on a podcast episode. He's like, no, I won't talk about it. I was like, come on. It's the cool stuff. <laughs> it's the secret society stuff I like. Yeah, there's nothing more fun and interesting than to uh, um, have late night breakfast in Dallas with Joe Green. <laughs> At a Waffle House, good old cracker. At a barrel. Waffle House or something like that. Yeah. Uh, Randy, seriously, man, thank you again for doing my show and thank you for the help you've been doing with my side project. Um, is there a place where people can find the searchers, where people can find your links? Yeah, you can find everything about me and and my films and and my work at thesearchersfilm.com. And there are links to everything, how to get the film and uh, updates about uh, the searchers part two. So thesearchersfilm.com. I'll make sure I link it all in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting. And thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.